Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tools for Truth, which is a special storyology event presented in partnership with Sydney Ideas here at the university. My name is Fran Kelly. I'm from Radio National Breakfast. But I'm also, and I'm here tonight in my capacity as a very proud member of the advisory board of the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. It is so great to see you all here tonight. Thank you for coming out on this freezing Sydney night. It's never this cold in Sydney, but here we are. And uh, I'm really impressed and grateful that you have all braved the cold to come out, to talk ideas, to talk journalism in particular. I'd like to start this evening by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and pay respect to all elders past and present, and so relevant tonight, pay particular respect to their great traditions of storytelling. Always was, always will be Aboriginal stories. Storyology is the centrepiece of the Walkley Foundation's public program. It's the major annual discussion of journalism and storytelling in this country. And this year we've taken Storyology on the road, kicking off in Brisbane last week, where it was a huge success. A lot of people attending, a lot of great discussions happening. There are events going on in Melbourne as we speak, and there's a full program starting here in Sydney on Wednesday and Thursday. And so I am very pleased that we can share this conversation with you here at Sydney University. At the Walkleys, we celebrate and support great Australian journalism. We do that by benchmarking and honouring excellence with the Walkley Awards, of course, perhaps our highest profile event. We also assist journalists with resources like training, professional development, exchanges and funding for innovation. And in this disrupted time for media, we look to the future trying to lead a conversation about where journalism is heading. And part of that is working to give the public a broader and deeper understanding of why good journalism is so important to our society, to our democracy, to our culture. And understanding that that has been diminished in these times of clickbait, celebrity news, times where the cray cry of fake news is used to deflect valid and indeed often critical scrutiny and criticism. And of course, we do all this on a non-profit basis, so we need to work with the many partners who support the Walkley Foundation's work. You don't have to be a big company, this is the pitch now, you don't have to be a big company to support the Walkleys. Anyone can make a donation of any size. So if you do care about good journalism, I would encourage you to consider perhaps supporting the Walkleys with a small but ongoing commitment. We're very delighted to be working with Sydney Ideas to present this free talk tonight, where you can all be part of the conversation about journalism. And thanks particularly to Meredith and Luke from Sydney University for their work to help bring this event to you. And if you enjoy this event tonight, I highly recommend you sign up to the Walkley email newsletter, because each week the Walkley team shares stories, news, and upcoming events around the country. So just head to walkleys.com slash subscribe, and it's all yours just waiting. 
And if you're a journalist, this is a reminder, a very important one. I hope you've got your Walkley entry in because if you're still working on it, remember they close on Friday and we are really looking forward to seeing your best work and judging it. So globally and sadly here in Australia, we hear more and more these days about fake news. I really hate that term, fake news. I know the voice of Donald Trump is ringing in your ears as I speak. Barely a day goes by where he doesn't fling the accusation out to the mainstream media organisations largely, who keep reporting the things that the US president doesn't want us to know or doesn't want us to be talking about. CNN, The New York Times, The Guardian, just a few of his favourite targets. But it's not just John Donald Trump. I mean, unfortunately, the term fake news has been adopted around the world as a quick way for powerful people to dismiss reporting they don't like and they don't agree with. We've seen it here, even in Australia, with politicians, our own Prime Minister. It's a dangerous way to shut down dissent, and I'm sure most who do it know that's exactly what they are doing. The thing is, fake news actually is a real thing, and it is a real problem, and it manifests itself in all sorts of different guises around the world, which is what we'll be hearing about more tonight on our panel. In Brisbane last week, we heard from Craig Silverman, one of the world's leading experts on fake news and misinformation, about the different kinds of fake news there are, the different permutations driven by different motivations, different political, ideological and financial motivations. And why we are hearing this term fake news so much these days, it's in the lexicon now, let's face it, it's actually not a new phenomenon at all. Tonight, our panel will discuss fake news what it means in different places with different regimes and different media cultures, and how journalists and citizens are fighting back. So let's get this discussion going. Could you please welcome Sydney University's Aim Sin Peng, who's the moderator of tonight's event, to introduce this fabulous panel and get stuck into this fascinating and crucial topic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you everyone for the honor to share the panel today. It's highly timely and very important issue. So the way uh, we're gonna do it uh, in this event is I will first have a couple of questions for each speaker. And they have about five minutes to, uh, to answer. Then I have a few group questions and then we'll open the floor uh, for questions from you. So there should be about close to an hour of discussion uh, between the speakers and the audience. So we'll first start with Maria uh, from Rappler. So we're hearing a lot about new developments in the Philippines, especially um, some would say political crisis happening in the country. And I know at Rappler, you're trying to address some of these challenges. Uh, what have you done in your organization, whether you can share that with us? Sure, I think you have to keep in mind that we now have a very populist president. Uh, he, was, he is perhaps the most powerful president the Philippines has had since Ferdinand Marcos, since martial law. He controls the executive, the legislative, he has a supermajority, and uh, essentially no political opposition. And the judiciary, 11, sorry, 13 out of 15 Supreme Court justices will be appointed by our president. So you've got executive, legislative, and judiciary. You put that together with a very controversial war on drugs. I think this may be what Australians may know more about the alleged extrajudicial killings by the Philippine National Police's own count. There's roughly from J July 1, 2016 to January 31, 2017, the Philippine National Police reported more than 7,000 people killed in the drug war. Uh, when there was an international condemnation, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, 
all of a sudden, the police and the government changed the numbers, changed the definitions, and we're now at a point where it's unclear exactly how many people have been killed. Why hasn't there been more of an outcry? And I think this, is, this goes to the heart of what Rappler has done and why we've become a target as well. Um, because at the core of determining our reality is the information that you get. At the core of every working democracy is our perception of reality, right? At some point, the right side of the audience and the left side of the audience are going to agree on what they're seeing in front of them. Well, what if you can hijack that reality, that space? What if we can make the right side of the audience and the left side of the audience hate each other so much or hate a critic so much that essentially only the government's voice is heard. That is what we reported on. We called it uh, weaponizing the internet, uh, the social media propaganda machine in the Philippines. Uh, as early as August, we took apart and showed you a micro how 26 fake accounts on Facebook can reach up to 3 million other accounts. And if you think about it this way, why the Philippines? Uh, we're, in 2010, we were called the social media capital of the world. Um, we have 100 million people, 52% are on the internet, so roughly 52 million. Of the 52 million on the internet, 97% are on Facebook. Our public space is Facebook. So it goes down to, actually, gosh, it's a long, the last part of this is where are we today? Um, State-sponsored online hate. Um, and that's directed at critics, at journalists, at anyone who questions um, alleged extrajudicial killings on Facebook. The Philippines is uh, one of the most dangerous countries in Asia for journalists even today. So you were talking about the importance of getting at the information. So what is the length that Rabbler reporters or journalists uh, or, and citizen journalists are willing to go to get to the information given the current circumstances and the problem with the safety of journalists in general? So I think uh, after we came out with a series last October on the propaganda networks, weaponization of the internet, uh, we took a look at how Facebook's algorithms, this is part two, how Facebook's algorithms determine, create these echo chambers, which then, because you're only talking amongst yourselves, you push each other further apart, right? And then the last one was on manufacturing reality. We took a look at how uh, bots, fake accounts, and fake news, manufactured news, then determine your perception of reality. Um, how far? The immediate reaction that weekend after it, I wrote two of the three-part series. I received uh, uh, an, about 90 hate messages per hour. Um, and that lasted about a month. Uh, it isn't just me. Uh, our reporters, our, our reporter who, who travels with President Duterte is also attacked online. Essentially, if you're a female reporter in the Philippines covering anything, um, you get attacked online. Levels of sexism and misogyny that I've never seen. Uh, this is my 32nd year as a journalist. I've gone through every administration since Marcos. I've covered Southeast Asia extensively. and. I, I've been a war zone correspondent, a conflict reporter. The difference is, in this conflict, you have no idea whether the threat is real or when it will jump out from the virtual world to the real world. 
Um, I can show you, perhaps after you hear from the gentleman, I can show you some of the threats that I've received. And for a little while, as a journalist, you sit there and you go, maybe it's me, maybe I'm wrong, right? You sit there and you think about it, but when you get clobbered for just reporting exactly what the president says, then you know that there is really something wrong. And the levels of threats that we've gotten, gang rape, I mean, every manner of animal, snake, dog, um, you know, uh, any kind of attacks on person, the way I look, the way I walk, the way I talk. Um, and again, gang rape until death. This is a 22-year-old young boy who, after I saw his threat publicly, I, just, I then took it and posted it on my, on my own Facebook page and asked for help to identify him. And when we did, this is a kid who was graduating from, co from college, and he was part, he had been dragged into the propaganda network. So that's the real world impact. Do you, having been a journalist for over 30 years, do you feel that social media, particularly Facebook in the case of the Philippines, actually made it more dangerous for journalists uh, to operate in the Philippines today, particularly if you can comment on the issue of hate uh, hate crime. Sure. Um, Rappler, the company I founded, grew because of Facebook. So in 2012, when we set up Rappler, the exponential growth of Rappler happened precisely because of the new technology, because of Facebook. So I know it's empowering capabilities. But 2016 was really radically different. And I would think part of it is because that was when instant articles of Facebook, that was when Facebook actually took news into its platform and that intermediary became the world's largest distributor of news. When you treat news the same way you treat what you had for dinner or the coffee you're having or the joke you're telling, strips away any kind of built-up credibility that you have in the real world and makes a blog like Trump for President at par, makes it equal to the New York Times. So th these algorithms were completely new. Um, in 2016, yes, obviously it's difficult as a journalist. Again, even for ABC Australia, I think you're, you have a few journalists who've come to the Philippines, uh, Australian journalists, um, the foreign journalists who have come in, the women in particular get battered online. Just follow it. Um, I'm optimistic, even though I've, it's much better after I show you the threats, because then you'll, I just get angry. But then you go, okay, we will live through this. We must live through this, because uh, my hope is that this generation of, of news consumers the younger kids, median age in the Philippines is 22, 23 years old. I hope that they will become more sophisticated than my generation was, and that at a period of time, this pendulum will swing again. Now I'm gonna switch to Sitard uh, from The Wire India. So you move out very soon arose in India's newspaper to start an independent online news site. What does independence mean to you, and what has your experience been like? I, I was in, in the newspaper world. I was in the newspaper world for um, 15, 16 years, and I uh, left my job as editor of the Hindu, which was a large national daily, in, at the end of 2013. 
uh, you know, essentially teaming up with colleagues who shared a sense of disenchantment that uh, we felt not not so much with newspapers as a you know tech technology of news dissemination, but with the ownership model and the business model of big media in India, which we felt was quite compromised. We felt it was quite broken. And we could see a connection between what we clearly identified as a deterioration in editorial integrity over a longer period of time, maybe 10, 15 years, and the fact that this business model was compromised and broken. So for us, starting the wire was not just to, sh to do something in the digital sphere, mm -hmm. but also to think of, a, of, a, of news and analysis as a not-for-profit model. So what's, what sets us, sets us apart is not just that we're digital, but unique in the Indian media sphere and perhaps even globally. Mm -hmm. um, we are building a, a large mainstream uh, news and analysis you know, platform um, in multiple languages. That is not for profit, and uh, it's been two, you know two years and a bit, and we see we you know we can already see the benefits of the fact that we are not controlled by investors, we aren't dependent on advertising or government largesse of one kind or the other, and that shows in the kind of you know reporting and analysis that we're able to carry. Why did you think there was the deterioration of editorial standards in mainstream Indian? Uh media that you mentioned? It's, it's, it's happened for a variety of reasons and you know, I'll, uh, those of you who stick with the storyology programs over the next few days will, will hear a lot of this from me. But in brief, the Indian media uh, industry as a whole is uh, overly dependent on advertising. Mm -hmm. Newspapers, for example, uh, rely on advertising revenue to the tune of perhaps 95% of total collections. Uh, so reader subscriptions are negligible. The same is true for television news. Most, of, most television news is loss-making. It's cross-subsidized by other enterprises that the owners of TV channels run, mm -hmm. with all the attendant problems that this kind of cross-holding brings. And I think this over-dependence on advertising over-dependence on subsidizing your news operations from other sectors of the economy where you have profitable businesses has created a culture where editorial um, standards have fallen. It's the business managers, it's the advertising guys who dictate things. Proprietors have become very risk-averse, particularly in, in, as the political climate changes you know, to the kind. I wouldn't say that what's happening in the Philippines compares uh, to India or to America. I mean, every country is different. But the um, perception that, that media owners have of a changed environment in which uh, the risks to more aggressive reporting are, are manifest, that they're higher than before, uh, in the context of this business model, which is broken, um, you know, has put a lot of downward pressure on reporting standards. So stories are not getting done. Uh, if they're getting done, they're getting done very perfunctorily. The topics for discussion that are chosen on television news channel debates in the evening, for example, are driven by, um, not, by not by editorial importance, certainly. There all kinds of political agendas come into play. Uh, so there is a sense, there's a connection that we see between the, the business side and the de clearly deteriorating editorial 
uh, standards uh, in India, which you know is happening you know to the outsider. The Indian media industry is a picture of health. You know, we have uh, newspapers still holding on to their circulation. Mm -hmm. We have more news channels than I would argue the rest of the world put together. Something like 324 by 7 news channels in different languages. Now, this stuff obviously cannot be profitable. Uh, so somebody's paying for it. And uh, the piper, piper is calling the tune, essentially, for the, for the vast majority of these channels. And, and that's where the problem lies. Matt, uh, as a journalist yourself for, for uh, foreign correspondent, do you, can you relate to some of the pressures that Sitart mentioned about profit making and the media and the kind of stories that you can pursue now compared to previously? Well, obviously, being at the ABC, we have a very different model to you know our commercial colleagues and contemporaries. And also, I have to speak that you know I work in a traditional broadcast landscape in the most part, and as opposed to Rappler and The Wire. But where we are, sort of the, the space we're trying to dance in now is is moving into that digital area and redefining, or not necessarily redefining, but recreating what the ABC audience is and. There's a commitment at the ABC to the international current affairs and increasingly focusing on our Asia-Pacific neighbours. Now, the reality is, in terms of the fake news conversation we've been talking about and trying to say, that's not particularly where we, we dance in that space, where, where we are. I mean, look, there's, there's an argument and there's conversations about how we do our coverage, that is, go to countries for a brief period, come out with a story, but we do do it with ABC editorial policies, objectivity in mind, and a, in a, a, perhaps an, a, an Australian take on things. And sometimes those issues, because we're approaching the stories that we cover, often quite hard stories with a, a slightly removed perspective. What we're finding now in the international, on the digital landscape, is that some of our content is now moving into the international arena and being embraced by countries who are suffering uh, through various government or private, you know, shutdown of their own media itself. We've endless stories the last 18 months, Venezuela, Turkey, South Sudan, uh, Myanmar, like we have gone in these stories that we've been able to generate through the finances of the ABC, but it's a commitment the ABC has to covering these stories. It's enabling us to put these highly polished, well-told stories on our broadcast landscape first but then also repurposing or reimagining that for our digital audience, which is effectively capturing the young audiences. There's a sense, I make a 28 minute program most weeks. It's very different to a, a, a one minute Buzzfeed video, but I often collaborate. I mean, we're, we're, we're a lot of our, that next generation coming through, we've grown up together and there is increasingly this collaborative approach where that short form space can create the curiosity perhaps that drives to the long form or vice versa. But I mean, this is something obviously our, some of our commercial competitors get very agitated about because the ABC is, making, is able to capture this content and through distributing it digitally where, you know, we are getting a large audience, um, increasingly large. Um, on the fake news thing, I've, I've been talking a little bit to students at UTS and I think, you know, the Trump bump factor where, and this is something the ABC experiences, where for all the cries of fake news and fake this and fake that, there's actually the mainstream, most people aren't necessarily buying into that. They are being pushed back to these legitimate entities. The New York Times, the subscribers under the age of 45 is over, you know, over 50% now since Trump has come in. So you're seeing this move as much as where there's all these new fake news sites and Breitbart's, et cetera, taking over, there is a return to what people have known to be 
the, the main news sources for so long. And a program like Foreign Correspondent, which is, you know, 25 years, I was in junior high still when the shows were started. And yeah, I'm part of the new, a newer generation who are working in that space. And that's okay, and the style of it and the storytelling way that foreign is becoming, it, it will change, mm -hmm. but that's okay. The point is we're still in the region um, and we're telling the stories. And perhaps more importantly than fake news in my mind with an interest in journalists is the dangers that a lot of our colleagues um, from the Philippines, from India. Myanmar is a country I have specialised in for many years. We've seen journalists once upon a time Going to prison was a badge of honour under the regime. Suu Kyi's release, an open media space, but now it's all being clamped down again with journalists in Turkey away. Venezuela, the borders are shut. South Sudan's radio reporters been shot left, right and like, It's a very dangerous space right now, even despite all this new citizen journalism, it's, the risks are real. You mentioned your time in Myanmar. Of all the countries that you've covered in our region, which country do you think uh, face a serious problem with misinformation and propaganda? Well, I mean, look, the Philippines is obviously a really, uh, uh, you know, serious example of, of this, but uh, I mean, I have worked, I've done stories and colleagues of mine were there recently, and as we discussed before, Adam took a bullet in the neck doing the Marawi story, but uh, the, the Myanmar to me is very interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking literally, I would go, I worked there when the regime, regime was in place for a, a very uh, interesting uh, publication called the Myanmar Times. It was a one way a foreign journalist could be in the country and we were able to file footage out under pseudonyms to various news agencies. Anyway, moving on. At that time, sir, on the desk, every other week another journalist would disappear from their desk. I mean, where's on Wynn? Oh, he got picked up last night. He's going to have two years away. So we were there. I saw that experience. I came back several years later to do a different program, go back to where he came from. Journalism was free. We were, we were freely walking into Rohingya camps and doing all kinds of, you know, shooting with big crews of really, you know, awkward sort of media movement. And, you know, to highlight a uh, young Burmese journalist last year, Estas Satan, she's a Kachin woman. She won the Pulitzer, she's a 29-year-old, you know, she did the reporting on the, the, the slave fisheries in Thailand. So you've gone from a country that shut down media for 50 years to within three years of opening up a Pulitzer Prize for a young female. But then a year later, and a lot of this comes back to the Rohingya story, which is a massive nationalist issue for the Burmese, um, you're seeing journalists once again being picked up and locked down. And increasingly, covering those difficult stories is, is coming back to citizens with their smartphones sending footage out and hoping that a media agency picks it up and someone can verify it and publishing stories that way. So for all the advances, there's been a lot of retreat in terms of press freedom. Can I add on to Myanmar? So Myanmar and the Philippines have two things in common. And so aside from the real world dangers, it's the, the fact that you have a population that went from 2% internet penetration rate to 75% in three years yeah. time, right? So you went, you have a, a, a society that had, that had no idea what media really was. Nothing. And then all of a sudden, they're dealing with fake news. They're dealing with hatred. They're dealing, it's, so, so it's not just media literacy that takes a medium term goal. This is about exponential growth of hate. So this is the last part of it is that if you have Australians, you guys are, are lucky in the sense that um, you're, you're not gonna die for food. Well, maybe I shouldn't say things like that, but um, you are well-educated. You probably know more about this than the, the average Burmese. And 
what happens when the very first time you get on the internet, you realize that uh, it's Facebook. So last part here on the, on the new media part is that Indonesia, the Philippines, and Myanmar are all free Facebook, right? So when you get your cell phone and you open the internet, um, you are automatically on Facebook. Uh, in Indonesia, the survey is, surveys say that, you know, someone will ask an Indonesian and say, are you, are you on the internet? And they'll say no. But then the surveyor will say, are you on Facebook? And they'll say yes. So it's, it's, um, it's that kind of problem that we have, right? When, uh, when India fought free basics, uh, I didn't really understand it until this year when you realize that the algorithms will determine your reality. If I could just, um, I think it's useful to put the phenomenon of fake news mm -hmm. in uh, a, a kind of broader context because this, uh, you know, while preparing for this, uh, for this event, I was going back and looking at our own archives uh, in The Wire and the first time we, we actually begin to write about fake news is in the context of, you know, when Trump is using it and it's used in the context of Trump and so on and so forth. Uh, today it's very much part of daily vocabulary. But to my mind, fake news is uh, a special class of disinformation, which has always been a part of the media landscape and it's always been a part of the official media strategy. So even in the United States, for example, if you look at um, me, the way in which media coverage was spun in the run-up to the Iraq invasion of 2003, so th uh, those pieces in, in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or on television or on CNN, uh, we perhaps wouldn't apply this label of fake news um, because this is a modern term, but that, that's in a way an early variant which crossed the line. I mean, until that point, you, you've always had government spin. So I, I would say that the, the, the starting point of any analysis of disinformation is to see how governments try to manipulate or spin the news and the news agenda. So if uh, an event happens which is embarrassing to a government uh, in the US or in India or the Philippines or Australia, the traditional strategy of those in power would be to make rush through some other announcement or to use trusted journalists and editorial writers to spin that event in a particular direction. So that's always been part of our landscape. What fake news does is that it is the product of that traditional you know, official impulse to direct or manipulate news. Uh, it, it, you know, that impulse when it gets married with the new technology and with the rise of kind of populist politics. So it takes the combination of these three factors to produce this very, very toxic mix that you have in the US, that you have in, in the Philippines and regrettably uh, for the past couple of years, uh, we are seeing in India the sustained and systematic use of social media to uh, promote, f you know, fake news is a benign term, you laugh about it, but you know, this is actually uh, hate politics. Events are fabricated and you have a, you know, and, and our 
put out through Twitter or Facebook or even more perniciously through WhatsApp, right? So we don't even know. So if something comes on Twitter or Facebook, others can see it and deal with it, right? So if, 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 there's a, if we come across a, fake, a, a Facebook post uh, of a, a bogus kind of a news site which makes uh, an inflammatory kind of accusation or reports something in an inflammatory way, because it's more or less in the public domain, just like a tweet is, others can deal with it. What do you do when WhatsApp messages become the primary source of disinformation? And that's the problem that we're dealing with in India right now. You have, uh, on, a, on, a, on a, I would say, a virtually industrial scale, the use of WhatsApp groups by, um, you know, people connected to the ruling party, perhaps even others with a political agenda, fabricating news, circulating it. Um, you know, there was one example I was going to show you from the screen, but it doesn't really matter. I'll just describe it. Uh, <clears throat> there was an incident in, those of you who understand the, uh, you know, current Indian politics, uh, so you, we have a government um, led by the Bharti Janata Party, which has traditionally been a so-called Hindu nationalist party. They say they represent everybody, and that's the, you know, the official line is that we stand for everybody. But the foot soldiers of this party uh, are busy, you know, fostering division and suspicion between Hindus and Muslims. And this is happening, you know, across the country in a, in a wide variety of ways. So suddenly a, a WhatsApp message is circulated of a video showing um, what it actually shows is a Bangladeshi political activist from one party killing another guy. A rival, a rival activist in the city of Chittagong in broad daylight. And because they're from Bangladesh and Bangladesh is majority Muslim, so as you would imagine, the guy doing the killing is visibly, he looks like a Muslim. So this video is circulated by unknown people, which says, look how cruelly, uh, with the message, see how cruelly Muslims are killing our Hindu brothers in India. And it mentions a particular town where a minor incident had happened, a minor incident of violence. So, you know, this is, this is inflammatory stuff. And, you know, we don't even know what all is circulating until somebody who happens to get a forward, you know, talks about it. So this is really a problem that we're dealing with. Sitar, you mentioned the role of government in spreading misinformation. Are you observing the same problem in the Philippines? And why would they do it? Absolutely. Um, and just to, to crystallize what Siddharth said, imagine if you tell a lie 10 times, truth can catch up, right? <laughs> but if you tell a lie a million times, it's fact. And I think that's the reality we're dealing with when you say uh, technology has exponential growth. So before, and we used to talk about uh, how exponential growth means great things for companies like Uber or Airbnb, right? Well exponential growth of propaganda is what we're living through now. And this is part of the reason why fake news, and you're not talking about um, the sky is orange. This is like saying um, he beats up his wife. He doesn't, but um, you know, if, if that was said a million times, anyone who doesn't know him will believe that. So that's the reality. Why is government? In the Philippines, um, I, and again, it was, we saw the evolution from the campaign, and, and from the campaign, the social media propaganda networks, 
That then pivoted, uh, President Duterte won in, in, he took office June 30th. On, in July, that essentially became weaponized when President Duterte decided to boycott traditional media for one month. He would only speak to state media and to the bloggers who supported him. And just a week ago, or two weeks ago, we came out with um, online, uh, online uh, state-sponsored hate the pro-Duterte bloggers, because those bloggers who helped him get elected are now hired by government. In fact, the anchor account of the propaganda network heads social media for the president's communication office, hired by government, paid for by our taxes. It's perfectly legal. And why? Because by taking this network that is extremely powerful now, it's had more than a year and a half, it already controls the algorithms in Philippine society, um, you're able to help determine people's ideas of reality. So look at the debate on crime and drugs. There's one part, and it's a message that's been pushed out. It is okay to kill. It's okay to kill because I'm protecting my family. Um, just over the weekend, you had protests in Manila because a 17-year-old kid was shot by cops, uh, and, uh, and this 17-year-old kid was part of the drug war. Uh, there hasn't been any investigation yet. There have been policemen who have shot another a mayor inside prison at four in the morning. There hasn't been an investigation yet. So this is, so part of it, <laughs> the last, the answer to your question is why? Because real people believe good propaganda. And if you control the information and you control our perspective of reality, you control reality. Matt, you cover Myanmar a lot. So would you say that there's the same dynamics you observe in India and, and the Philippines in Myanmar, particularly on the issues of um, hate speech against the Muslim? Yeah, look, I, I haven't been back for 18 months or so, but that, that is, that's just by following that story from the start, exactly. It's, a, it's the harnessing of social media through nationalist groups, often under the guise of Buddhist interests that are driving a lot of these sort of anti-Muslim flames, which particularly point out the Rohingyas. And I mean, look, you've got state media there in Burma that's thriving as much as any new independent startup run by 28-year-old, you know, young journalists. These, they, but they, it's just so outlandish. I mean, they put Rambo uh, images of Rambo out earlier this year, suggesting that Rambo had been recruited by the Rohingyas to fight back against the Burmese military. I mean, this stuff is being circulated, but like Maria suggested, there's some of the uh, the audience for that news is it's not as mature as other countries. It just hasn't had that experience. So these incidents are being, this, this media is being consumed and it's flaring up um, problems, hate, you know, violence and that's resulting in, you know, what some describe as, you know, one of the world's current genocides of sorts. You know, it's hard, it's actually increasingly hard for us to go as someone like foreign correspondent, a colleague of mine, um, sorry, our Thailand bureau correspondent, Liam Cochran, he just went on a trip into um, Rakhine State, but it's very, it's very controlled. We've gone back to these government-run tours of camps and things where you can talk to this person, and there's lots of reports that anyone that spoke differently to the government line was, you know, put away in prison shortly afterwards. But again, it's not exclusive to to 
Philippines or we are seeing this like in across the globe in these you know whether it's the you know the Venezuelan situation unfolding there in Turkey post coup I mean governments are using this sort of fake news propaganda social media platform to call out enemies or you know personal enemies in many cases and they are getting support through these channels that you know encourages them to put these people away and you know I was going to jump in if you haven't yet read. So we called it the propaganda machine, right? But mm. Oxford University came out with a series uh, that it did on computation. It called it computational propaganda, the use of bots, fake accounts, fake mm. news to to essentially undermine democracy. And you mentioned Ecuador, um, Venezuela, Turkey. It's uh, the Oxford University did it in nine countries. There's a new report that's going to be coming out by Jigsaw, which is the think tank of uh, Google. That report talks about it as patriotic trolling. Patriotic trolling, the rise of state-sponsored online hate to silence dissent, right? You make examples. If you've been talking too loudly and criticizing me, I will shut you down. And by attacking her at a very basic level, um, others will be scared. So it's the use of fear. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, it, it, there's, a, there's a quote from an academic in the program we did in Venezuela where she says populism isn't uh, something of the right, it's, it's for both sides and the world could have learned from Venezuela in the past. Now whatever your read on that is, it's, it's, it's basically the point being that these phenomena are, are not beholden to a leftist or rightist thing, it's just a power agenda and that's what's being kept, that's what's allowing these people to be put in with increasingly authoritarian takes on their democratic systems in those countries. It's also not exclusive to developing nations. Our programs documented this in parts of Europe and in the United States. I mean, I did a thing even on the Black Lives Matter story, like this sort of fake news propaganda model is, is it's not particular to a developing media landscape or a developing nation. This is a first world story, this is a first world issue. And increasingly, groups, you know, companies or broadcasters like the ABC, uh, we're under threat for our own funding. And you know, there are less and less platforms to do rigorous, in-depth journalism, taking apart some of these stories or these lies per, per se. That's the role. I mean, look, so that's that's what our role is in terms of fake news, like what, how Foreign Correspondent or Four Corners or a, or an Al Jazeera East One Hundred One or a program Frontline. How we look at it. We're not really, again, we're not looking at the daily fake news, but it's, we're going in with a camera and robust journalistic principles. This is not fake news. This is what I'm filming right now on the Ugandan South Sudanese border. That's what's happening. And this is increasingly the model that, you know, the shift that just, we want to hear from those people. They're telling us their stories. Now, there are, in, there are risks in trying to get that content, but it's worth doing and it's, what we, what we need is to support those media organisations who are prepared to put reporters and teams out there and to capture those stories that are increasingly hard to get and are falling into the hands of uninsured, unsupported freelancers to do a lot of this, the dirty work now. And that's not necessarily a great model either. Um, but you know, like Charlottesville the other day, you, you, you probably 25, 30 million people have watched Vice's, Vice News' coverage of the Charlottesville um, race riots. I mean, that's important coverage, and people would have written Vice off once upon a time as just some sort of hipster clickbait, you know, sort of news site. But there, some of these newer agencies of media or journalism are actually getting stories out that traditional broadcasters haven't got to yet, and that's not a bad thing. It just means there's 
a, co a combined effort against some of this sort of fake news or race hatred type stuff that's been spruiked online through the social channels. Sitart, given the new kind of financial structure you're, you have for your news organization, how do you propose you can um, acquire high quality, rigorous journalism, the kind of the one that would fight against misinformation that Matt just talked about? So, so we are a, a, a you know, small, relatively small organization. Uh, two and a half years since we started, we perhaps, in terms of employees, Journal, editorial employees, and we have only, I think, two non-editorial. So we have 25 journalists, that's mm -hmm. it, uh, who are full-time with The Wire. And then we have a, a lot of trusted uh, freelancers who, who, who do contribute. But the growth plan really involves raising money from readers. Uh, and, you know, essentially, the challenge is to do that without, without a paywall, uh, which we hope to be able to innovate and do simply because we feel what we offer to readers is something that they can't get uh, very easily from elsewhere. Uh, so, so this is a challenge. But, uh, you know, the, it's not as if information isn't out there. Uh, what's needed is uh, an ability to sift through, to also, but to also fight your own conf confirmation bias. Because sometimes you get a so-called citizen journalist's footage that you know, fits in very well with the preconceived idea that an editor may have. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I'll give an example, actually. Uh, those of you who have watched the news over the last couple of days, th there's been a series of riots in one particular state in India because uh, a guru was convicted, I mean, so-called guru was convicted of rape, and his followers went on the rampage. And this guy, this, this guru is politically connected uh, with, with links to the ruling BJP. He supported them in their election. So he's being treated with kid gloves, and there was a picture that emerged of him being taken from the court to prison in a helicopter. And this was an Augusta Westland helicopter. And there was a, one image that came of him sitting down, smoking a cigar in this helicopter, and you could see the letter AW139, very clearly written on the, on the body of this helicopter. And there's many photographs of Narendra Modi, the prime minister, using a helicopter with the same, the same AW139. So a lot of people on Twitter were saying, ah, this is you know, the same businessman who gave Modi his helicopter has also given to this guy. But it turned out that that's just the, that's just the marquee. That's just the, the, it's not a call sign for the aircraft, but that's just the way Augusta Westland writes its number on the, on the helicopter, right? So, so you have to resist the urge as, as an editor to say, because you know, that, that would have been a great story, right? Uh, for any muckraker, if, yeah. if it turns out that these guys share the same patron. Uh, but it wasn't true, right? So, uh, so it's important to, and you know, uh, people on Twitter and Facebook, uh, critics of the Prime Minister were mouthing off uh, on the basis of misinformation. So it's important to you know, be very, very disciplined, very, very restrained. I would much rather that we miss a story than um, uh, you know, jump onto something and find out a day, late, uh, a day later that this wasn't quite correct. Uh, so, so there's a huge burden that's, that's placed on us, but we, we aren't the only ones. I mean, there are lots of people who are fighting uh, the good fight in India. There are, uh, there's at least three sites that have come up, uh, including altnews.in, which are dedicated to uh, combating fake news um, that is put out by various, you know, either by the government or by different parties. And uh, they're pretty quick in terms of spotting a photograph that's been morphed. 
or a, a, a fake number, like if the prime minister or a, some other minister makes a, an exaggerated claim. Uh, we now have quite a, a robust tradition of fact checkers who, are, who, who leap and look at the data and say, well, this is right, this isn't right, uh, this is correct, but that's, that, but that's not. Mm. So I think um, <clears throat> having that network of reliable people uh, uh, holds the key to uh, a small organization like, like ourselves, mm -hmm. having a, a much larger footprint uh, in the editorial space mm -hmm. than, uh, than we might otherwise have. But I can't uh, you know, stress enough the need for editorial discipline and actually you know, restraint, uh, because the last thing you want to do in the name of combating fake news is to get sucked into circulating rumors uh, of another kind that may not be true. Our last quick question before we open the floor to, for Maria and Matt. So what can ordinary citizens do, like us, news consumer, do to combat the rise of trolling online as well as misinformation online? Uh, I say this all the time in the Philippines, uh, don't be silenced, the first. Um, what happened in the Philippines after the rise of, the, of our our weaponization series after the rise of the propaganda machine is that uh, Facebook, which used to be ranked number one in Alexa ranking a year ago, dropped to number eight. People just shut their Facebook pages. That's also not good because that means only, it becomes a self-selecting group then that will then determine reality. So first is stay online, stay engaged, continue, um, to continue doing your civic duty as a citizen first. Second, how do you protect yourself, right? Um, and this is the dip most difficult part which we didn't really talk about, which is when does an, uh, an online threat become a physical threat? And when you work in a country like the Philippines where uh, people are getting killed every night, you begin to think about that, right? When does a lone wolf then take that kind of, of, of push and actually carry out violence? This is the challenge we face today, but what we say to our communities is that um, co form communities of action. You have each other's backs, right? And, and call out fake, call out news that is meant to mislead. And I think misleading is even more innocent because some people are, just make a mistake like this. They're not journalists. But what about disinformation? So the, the difference between misinformation and disinformation, um, collaborate. I think traditional journalists are not so good at collaborating. Uh, in the Philippines, we're trying to get the journalists to work together so that we can follow up on each other's stories better. Uh, this is not a fight now between, uh, between networks or between print and television, this is actually a battle for truth. And there are people who want to manipulate truth. It is a battle for trust. It is a battle to determine what reality is. All of this impacting the quality of democracy. So don't give up. I think that was I, I, exactly what you said there, the point that we are all inherently global now. Like the media landscape is global. And instead of all, what we're trying to work out, say at a space like foreigners, instead of all covering the same story across 12 different platforms or 12 different international competitors, is actually collaborating, communicating. You know, we're only as ever as good as our actual local team that we work with on, in each given country. And we take a huge you know, um, responsibility in making sure that those people are, when we leave, 
are, are, you know, are, are, have not been compromised in any way. But in, for all that effort and energy going in, the, if for audiences to still maintain their engagement with that content, to put eyeballs on it, to watch it, so that the powers that be actually recognise that, yeah, there is still an appetite for this sort of information. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching or pushing from the long-form space. You know, that's important. It, uh, you know, for every one-minute video, the 28, 30-minute version gives you a lot more depth and a lot, you know, a much deeper understanding of those stories. So we're all sort of in this game or this war, this battle, if you will, together. Uh, and I think that idea of collaboration, particularly, again, younger audiences, they don't know it to be a regional media base. Everything is inherently global. And whether they're sourcing the story on The Wire, Rappler, the ABC, uh, the New York Times, uh, Vice, whoever, it's, it is that collaboration of those trusted media sources that will ultimately prevail, one would hope. Sounds great. So I think it's time to open the floor up for a Q&A. Uh, Meredith, here has a microphone. Please stand up, introduce yourself, and ask one... Yes. Ask one brief question, because we have a full room here, so we want to make sure everybody gets a chance. Yes, sir. Uh, hello, my name is Ken Fraser. I'm uh, teaching here at Sydney Uni in International Relations. Uh, this is a fascinating discussion, but I'm con uh, just interested in it, that the whole landscape's changed because the business model has changed, and the business one of, part of the business model now is simply clickbait, that if you get someone to click on your link, you make some money out of it. So uh, a lot of the focus of the discussion so far has been on governments or power brokers controlling information in their own interests. But there's this whole other element of this sort of Frankenstein's monster thing where it's completely uncontrollable. Nobody can control this kind of people, whole industries of people who will simply write any headline. They have no political interests. They're not interested in anything except getting someone to click on their headline. And that makes for an uncontrollable, chaotic environment. So I'm just wondering what you think about that. Thank you. Uh, if I can, you know, I think you're right. I mean, the, uh, the reason we focused on uh, the interlinkage with, with officialdom is because, at least in our cases and in others and in the US, there are, there are obvious linkages. But it is part of a wider problem. Back in the day, you had, when I was uh, living in the US, uh, I think it was called the National Enquirer, right? this tabloid that would be sold in the supermarkets with bizarre headlines and completely, you know, basically bullshit stuff, right? Uh, you know, uh, which people would buy and, you know, it was, it was good for a lark and it was, it was very profitable. You now have that model on a sort of industrial replicator across the board. Uh, we've noticed a trend in India where a lot of these fake news sites um, actually uh, do end up making a lot of money even those with a political agenda, because they all invariably run Google ads and they, 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 they promote each other's stories and they're sort of interlinked in this way. Uh, so uh, the, you know, the fact is that fake news not only serves the business, not only serves the political agenda, but there is money to be made in it. And uh, that's why I think it's essential uh, that platforms like ours also educate readers, educate viewers on uh, how to spot what's fake and what's not. Uh, and certain very obvious, you know, when, the, when there's a mismatch between the headline and, you know, when the claim in the headline is simply not echoed by any information in the story or in the first two, first two paragraphs, uh, it's obvious that this is uh, something that's been dressed up. 
Uh, I think, you know, short of educating and making people conscious of this and also urging people, as we often do, not to forward or share stuff unless they really, you know, think about whether this is genuine in some way. Uh, and I would say the more sensational the item, the greater is the amount of time that they should spend uh, mulling over whether this should be shared or not. Because uh, chances are that, uh, you know, it's more likely to be fake than not. But otherwise, you're right. I mean, the terrain, is, it's, it, it is in some ways quite terrifying because there is a, a, a self-perpetuating, you know, this beast is self-perpetuating. I want to quickly give three points because that's a, a fascinating part of it. The business models of news are crumbling. But why is that happening? Because um, let's talk again technology, this exponential growth, right? The amount of information that is being created because of technology, and it comes down to the amount of computing power on a chip, uh, it starts there and then grows exponentially, right? Is roughly about 6,000 square meters per second globally, every second, that is how much is being created out there. It's 6,000 square meters per second. You, you put that, that is the speed of the ripple of an atomic explosion, a nuclear explosion. When you think about it like that, then begin to think that this explosion is happening over decades. Because if you think about it, Moore's law really began in the 60s, right? So this has already been happening over decades. It's a tidal wave that's consuming it. We're living through creative destruction right now. So everything, what you're talking about is clickbait, I felt was like maybe 2012, 2013, BuzzFeed grew on some of that stuff and is no longer doing it. Everything is evolving so fast. The last part of this is that news and tech are fusing together like banging together. You go into any developing market. In the United States, uh, the information estimates about 90% of new digital ad spend is going to Google and Facebook. That means news groups are gonna have to split the 10%, even though the news groups are the ones creating the content for Facebook and Google, right? That's the world we live in. So what are we doing with Facebook and Google? We're negotiating with them. We're talking with them. And part of Rappler's strength uh, when we first started was a new business model that would allow us to be able to survive in the digital landscape. But it's changing so fast. Um, I would say every six months, you have to look at this landscape and then look again and find new ways of dealing with it. Same for news consumers. Oh, I'll, I'll ask and have the next one has it. Um, oh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, ask, uh, following on from this talk about changing business models, um, there's been a shift uh, of some editorial functions offshore that's happened in Australia as well including to the Philippines because <laughs> you work cheap over there and you speak English and you know, obviously you're reasonably professional. Uh, but there, as a result, there's been a loss of um, inherited news experience, editorial sense, and a dumbing down in that sense and an automation. Obviously, a lot of algorithms are going in as well as cheap labour. So just wondering uh, what you see, is there going to be an aggregation, as we've seen with manufacturing, in, in low... Uh, uh, low-cost labour uh, markets until maybe automation takes over entirely, um, where in places like the Philippines might then have an editorial influence, even though indirectly, 
and possibly places in India or, or Pakistan as, as well, um, where their kind of new sense and their idea of the world could subtly infiltrate into the editorial policies because of this delegation and subcontracting out. So I don't think so. And that's roughly, largely because with so much, with this tidal wave of information, you're taking bits and pieces that you're pulling together. Now more than ever, each of us is creating our own reality. And that's scary. We, have, we haven't even talked about artificial intelligence or robotics. I mean, there are now stories that are created just based on, um, on a weather report, right? A weather report comes out or, or uh, e easy sports. The game happens and then the story is automated. Um, I think what'll happen is that we're, go we're in the process of, of creating something new for the future. And the intermediaries like Facebook, Twitter, Google, all of these guys are gonna be part of it as are news groups. But the challenge for traditional news, traditional journalists, traditional news consumers is to anticipate and imagine what kind of world this will be. To think that just because India BPO outsourcing is out there, right? Uh, Facebook does most of its comment moderation from two countries, Poland and the Philippines, right? Um, just because that happens doesn't mean that they will have control because the whole idea of control now has got to sh shift. We're moving from a world of scarcity, which is the way we used to think about it, we can control it, to a world of abundance. And the challenge is for, for each of us as consumers is to actually find meaning and hopefully for organizations like ours to help provide it for you. Can I just say, that you, you see, the scary part of, of the evolving news landscape is uh, not the outsourcing part so much, although clearly to the extent to which it affects jobs in Australia or the US or the UK. I think it is an issue for, uh, for journalists to take up. Uh, what worries me is that not enough resources will be devoted uh, to news gathering and reporting. So it's quite common for websites to devote a, a large part of their resources to repurposing the content that others produce. Right? And all of us do it, we do it, we, I think we do it in the wire, we do it very effectively. A story appears in a legacy newspaper that's downplayed. You know, it doesn't make it to page one, but we, we, we see great potential in this story. So we work on it, we soup it up, get some more background information, and the story goes viral. Were it not for that original report, chances of us stumbling upon that story would have been slender. Right, so I, I, I worry about a world in which uh, the, the fundamental reporting becomes more and more scarce. Uh, and the reason it's going to happen is because news agents, it's expensive to gather the news, right? And uh, particularly if you want to, as you, you know, if you, you raise the issue of perspective, right? So it's important for ABC to send somebody to Turkey or to South Sudan to look at that news from an Australian perspective, because otherwise you will get Reuters or New York Times or you know, RT, whose view you may or may not agree with, but it's not, it's not your perspective, right? And the same, is, same goes for, uh, for an Indian view on the world. Uh, so that's what worries me more than um, the outsourcing of, of sub-editing 
uh, or you know, rewriting activities, which is, uh, I think, more a livelihood issue for those who, whose jobs are going. Just, just, I mean, the long form space is slightly different in that we operate, we rely on the news frame to often to give us the leads to where we go and dictate, you know, at least influence what we're looking to do. But there is a bit of a renaissance, if you will, for long form journalism going on. We're seeing documentary investment, factual television journalism in that longer model actually doing quite well on the newer platforms. The Netflix are now investing into that space in the documentary and those other platforms will do that. News is under the biggest threat of all this remodelling. We're, we're finding that, you know, whether it's a foreign or it's a, a, a something separate, the, the strong journalism can still be there in this documentary space. And there's plenty of evidence that suggests young people, if that's the audience everyone talks about, no one's interested. They actually are interested. People are watching a lot of content. It just has to be done the right way in, you know, the right feel and the style and the approach has to be tackled differently perhaps to how we've always just put a camera on something and assume people will watch that for half an hour. I don't think that works anymore. People aren't as fooled. The tricks of television or filmmaking, there needs to be a new approach, much more uh, authentic perhaps, you know, in the new, the new strategies of thing. But then at the same time, we we're talking, I mentioned before the Trump bump. Since Trump came in, the New York Times had a 50 to 60% increase in its online subscription. 70% of which were under 40 or thereabouts. So, and of a significant percentage of that early 20 year So there are people give a shit, like young people do care, and they are going to go to those strong journalistic homes to find news. Perhaps this madness that's going on may even advance our you know, journalism ultimately. Can you hear me? I just wanted to ask the panel's view about the question of um, fake news and big data, uh, data analytics. Um, I think it's generally accepted that for both Trump and Brexit, that data analytics had a big um, play in terms of being able to target people and target the message that's actually communicated to them. And um, here in Australia, for example, we have the, um, well, the company that was behind this big data analytics, Cambridge Analytica, their parent company opened an office here in Sydney um, only a couple of months back. Um, and we also have the, meta, the metadata retention laws here in Australia as well. I'm wondering if that actually paints a picture for Australia like, that maybe is a bit worrying in terms of um, the ability to target uh, people, target what's communicated to them, uh, the degree of fakeness of that information. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if the panel had any comments around that um, landscape. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, Cambridge Analytica had a role in Brexit, right? I mean, they, they said that they would. So we're talking behavioral economics in terms of both business model and so socialization. Um, everything on social media is unstructured big data. Anyone who has access to that data, and a lot of it is in the public domain. Twitter puts it all out in the public domain. You can actually then come and find meaning in it. Um, so for example, I, I, was, I had slides I was gonna show you, but we don't seem to need it. So, so for example, you can actually see when something is artificially manufactured, like, in uh, hashtag pray for Marawi, the, the time that uh, the Philippine government declared martial law in, uh, after the ISIS came into Marawi, right? The very first tweet that began the trend was retweeted 
56,000, more than 56,000 times in one minute, in the first minute. So you know that that is wrong. So I think to, the only way to deal with that is radical transparency. We are going to have to become more literate with unstructured big data. And these words, computational propaganda, these need to become part of our own DNA as we deconstruct the reality we're being fed. Um, in the Philippines, we were advocating that the Department of Education begin social media, teaching social media as early as the fourth grade because this is in the public domain. Cambridge Analytica goes one step further and this is the challenge to politicians now. And what are you gonna do? How far are you going to go? When you can target to the point of I want a young woman who wears sneakers, who has a young kid, single mother, right? You can do that on Facebook. Um, Cambridge Analytica can take 70 of your posts and give you a psychographic analysis. This is, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Should government create laws against this? I don't know if it's in the public domain. Of course, with Facebook, it isn't in the public domain. But there are ways to work with it. These are some of the things we're doing in Rappler. But what we do is once we find the data and we show you what is happening, we push it out as journalists. So Craig Silverman, I think, was doing this with, um, with uh, BuzzFeed in the United States in terms of Russian disinformation. We haven't talked about Russia's role in the disinformation ecosystem. It's here to stay, I guess, is what I'm saying. And big data uh, will allow us to, to cope with it. All of this co information coming at you that is attempting to manipulate you, our target as individuals and as news journal, as journalists is to try to find its roots and create meaning. That hasn't changed. It's just it becomes more difficult and it's like we're, we're learning a new language. I, I mean, I, I would say in the Indian context that um, the use of big data for political campaigning is already part of, part of the landscape now. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I agree with Maria that the GD can't be put back in the bottle. And so uh, the BJP made the best use of uh, data and social media and new, new digital technologies in the last election. Others are also trying to catch up. But uh, all of this is a resource. Have, it's, you, know, you need deep pockets to fully exploit uh, all the opportunities that data presents. And there is a kind of a circularity to once you're, once you're at the top of the pile, then you have access to more resources. You can hire a large number of, you know, and we see some of the same trends that, you're, that you've, uh, you know, for example, you have social media marketers uh, who, will, who are available for hire, who will, uh, you know, create, uh, you know, get your, your particular hashtag or your particular story tweeted, retweeted, or a particular perspective put out. And this is happening, uh, and its growth is increasing. And as I said, we don't know the full impact of that on WhatsApp, because that is uh, a, a not quite fully visible mm -hmm. uh, social media dissemination platform, uh, which is incredibly popular. I would say that uh, before people, if I mean, maybe because we don't have uh, zero basics, so so I mean, Facebook is still many many Indians for them, fa internet is the Facebook, but WhatsApp is the first point of contact with the digital. Which is also world. Facebook, yeah. WhatsApp. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you talked about this tidal wave of information and it's an abundance, but it also creates a scarcity. The scarcity is the algorithms which filter what we see and what money gets earned. I was just wondering, is there an effort for like responsible journalists, journalism companies to create their own platform? You know what I mean? So that you can capture the value of what you create. Because, because the bottleneck is in the platform. It, you can count them in, in one hand, Google, Facebook, Twitter. They're all filtering billions and billions of what we do. There are no competitors. So maybe that's where the problem is. And you don't want government. You need more competition in that area. I, I think you're right. Um, and that's part of what we're trying to do in our platform. Right? But the difference is Facebook has more than 2 billion people on that platform, and it's global. And it's scaled in a way that is difficult for newcomers to do now. So um, it is platform. Here's the last part. The, the quote, fake news, is not just there to mislead you or to give you disinformation now. The end goal is to game the algorithms so that it will feed you more of what they want to feed you, right? Whoever created that fake news. It is not, it doesn't stop at the creation of one where they get you to click and read it. It goes to how they can then change the algorithm so that you get more of that version of reality. So that's, that's why, uh, in answer to your question, why we started with state-sponsored hate, why we started with propaganda, because power now begets power online, but it's the power of data. Whoever has that, the algorithms pushes you up even more, and that is, becomes the biggest megaphone. Can I say, I, I'm sort of, uh, I think we need to recognize that uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and even WhatsApp, uh, even as they are being gamed by more powerful forces, and even as they serve as gatekeepers in some vital sense, and filter content and decide who gets to see what, have also contributed to a certain leveling of the playing field that a small startup like mine has, has benefited from. So the kind of visibility that we've managed to acquire in two and a half years uh, would have been unprecedented without these technologies of sharing with all their limitations. I mean, had we launched the wire 10 years ago uh, or in, in the pre-Facebook, pre-Google, uh, you know, we'd be starting a newspaper and then worrying about how to, how to get copies of this to circulate. Uh, so I think I don't want to knock the uh, digital, you know, the social media and all of these platforms too much. But for us, uh, rather than creating something different, which is really uh, beyond the realm of, of the possible, I think. Uh, although, you know, when Hotmail was the big mail company <laughs> and, and, and it's vanished now, right? So you never know. But I would say for me, I, I value uh, organic traffic. So, so our goal is always to get people to just come straight to the site and uh, not worry too much about, you know, what links you're going to see. Uh, so for us, the, the newsletter is an important method of dissemination and, and building communities through the newsletter. Uh, or uh, encouraging people to, to sign up and become members and supporters of The Wire so that you get this content in an unmediated fashion. Uh, so I think that should be really what we strive for, uh, even as uh, you know, we take advantage of all the benefits that uh, social media platforms give us. Uh, hello. I have a question about um, education as a part of a broader 
um, and deeper um, response to what you're talking about tonight, about fake news and determining what's real and what's not. Um, it, it's pretty well known that uh, higher literacy levels and higher education levels are, are good things. They help people live longer and have happier lives, be more productive and have higher incomes. Is there a conversation at all about, about the role of, rise, of raising literacy uh, and raising education levels just per se as a broader response to this rather than, I'm not talking about educating people about how to consume media, just education in and of itself? Yes, absolutely. I think when you, when you think about, at least our, when we're thinking about potential solutions, we're thinking short, medium, and long term. Media literacy becomes a short and medium term, but ultimately, going straight throughout this is education. The, the, the problem, of course, is in the short term, immediately, the intermediaries, and I call the platforms the intermediaries, that would be Twitter, Facebook, it's the tech platforms that have the immediate short-term response. And they're reacting, you know, so not mean, meaning to diss them because again, I'm a startup and we couldn't have gotten the kind of scale that we've gotten without them. But at the same time, their very drive for growth in 2016 broke some democ democracies, right? So we've seen a tipping point of these algorithms now, and now the platforms are having to deal with it. Um, all of them are investing money in the medium term, and, and to them they say short term of media literacy. But I think every nation, in the Philippines we're pushing, uh, we have a partnership with the Department of Education. We believe that education is, is the through line of everything, but in a country where you have um, weak institutions and where poverty is really still a basic problem to deal with, education, while it's gotten a larger share of the budget, still cannot reach the scale that you guys have here or in the develop other developing nations. I'd say, I'd say, you know, shorter steps. You know, I, I wonder what the impact would be if Twitter no longer were to allow anonymous profiles uh, and that, you know, uh, I'm sure that would have an impact on fakery, on trolling, certainly on the targeting of uh, women that we see in India too, as you, as you see in the Philippines, um, you know. So I, I think that the long term, obviously, you know, uh, education is, uh, will raise the level of conversation across the board, without a doubt. But Forms like Twitter or other, which allow anonymous um, interventions, while they may also serve a healthy purpose sometimes, uh, I think can also be very, very negative. And maybe one short term is, you know, is to is to just try to have verified. Um, you know, we we, for example, you see the difference between a site which allows anonymous, unmoderated comment. And uh, uh, like say the Times of India, which is the largest paper in India, thousands of comments is all filthy rubbish, right? Highly defamatory, you know, stuff. And you compare that to the conversations you have through registered people, moderated comments on the New York Times site, right? Uh, so I think it is possible to steer conversations, uh, even in a large platform like Twitter, if some changes were made. Question. Yeah. Um, just, I guess it's the job of journalists to create true news, 
and report on fake news. Um, what's the job title or what are the skills needed to, to actively fight fake news? Apart from the education that you just mentioned. <laughs> well, look, I, I guess uh, where I sit in the industry, it is just doing is doing more of the same. Like again, my, um, as a public broadcaster, we have a very, you know, a, a very broad platform base, and there's no one sure solution. We have, you know, our broadcast commitments as much as our digital and online. Um, the ABC has, you know, it's an institution. It's obviously very developed in terms of its editorial and its, you okay, know. So, is it in the charter of the ABC to put truth out there, or is it in the charter to actively fight lies? Uh, I guess the ABC, the, the, these conversations, these new terms are not part of when the ABC charter was written. How do we apply the ABC charter to these stories? I guess it again. It's covering those stories, whether it's covering the rise of fake news, whether it's covering uh, a conflict in Syria, whether it's covering uh, maternal death rates in Papua New Guinea. The role for us at the ABC, where we stand, is just to continue with the reportage of stories that make are important to the Australian and increasingly to a global audience as our you know our reach expands onto the digital platforms now. Similarly here, it's not quite as um, intense at all times, although we're all probably quite aware of some of the threats that have been made to the ABC in the past year. We can't have public people walk through our foyer anymore. As, you know, things have changed. So the, there are real threats. We, we, and it's a place like Foreign, we often come under um, attack online by trolls and so on. But there is more of a sense of a, a moderation and perhaps um, the, the Australian experience isn't, isn't as volatile as our colleagues here and our, you know, our regional neighbours um, where, again, we talked about education before. There is a, obviously a developed media literacy here from a, a, you know, a young age and there is, a, there is a sense of being able to look through it perhaps a little bit more in Australia and the, in parts of Europe. It doesn't mean that everything gets caught, and we can see that you know increasingly there's, there's you know some quite in interesting stuff that gets thrown around. But Australians are lucky that the ABC is there as a perhaps dare I say a benchmark of coverage of stories. So we can, if in doubt, perhaps refer back to the ABC and see what they did. I'm not <laughs> I don't know, but it's just it's a very different. I, I, and this is why I've been letting these two esteemed uh, colleagues here. Um, take this on because they're operating in particularly um, you know, vibrant, dynamic media landscapes where the rules are being written every day or every minute as six and a half thousand metres of content comes out and explodes across us. Um, Australia's, I think what we can get from these great media starts across the globe is a more deep, a deeper understanding from within country, that journalism that's been done. You know, my role is to fly in and cover content stories and so on. That's one take on things, but the content being generated in the Philippines by Filipino journalists that we can also consume here in Australia adds to our robust media landscape. So, I think different kinds of, different aspects of this phenomenon call for different kinds of approaches and solutions. Where people in authority, people in government, people in political parties or business leaders put out misinformation or disinformation, it is essential that there be vigorous, instantaneous fact-checking by reputed media organizations. This never used to be part of uh, the daily beat in the past. 
maybe because governments and politicians didn't lie as much or maybe we just took it for granted that they lied and the lies were in the main not, you know, uh, malignant. I don't know. <laughs> but I think today every self-respecting uh, news organization uh, has to subject official claims, claims by politicians, claims by business leaders to rigorous fact-checking and to call them out brutally and ruthlessly when uh, there is disinformation certainly but even when there is when there is misinformation and, and it should be instant and quick within 24 hours that rebuttal should come when it comes to poisonous disinformation uh, I have no compunction in saying that the laws of the land if there if if there is a law in a country against criminal incitement then if somebody is fabricating the digital equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded hall and causing a stampede which you know, leads to people's lives being lost, then the full force of law has to apply for people who are actively you know, fomenting hatred through, through disinformation. As for garden variety you know, fakery of the you know, uh, urban legends and stuff, uh, you know, uh, there can be a, you know, there can be a, every country should have a snopes.com where, where you can go and verify these silly mails, chain, chain emails that come. But I think that the, the, it's the um, fabricated, you know, stuff that is put out there with an express political purpose to, to mislead, to divide, that we really have to go after. And I think that uh, complacency uh, is simply not possible. And of course, educating the reader and the viewer all the time, uh, how she, can distinguish between, you know, as I said, there are simple rules of the thumb, you know, that help you to at least navigate your way through 50% of what's fake. Uh, a more sophisticated fake uh, uh, story may be harder to, to break down, but that's where we would then come in. I will ditto everything that our, my co colleagues on the panel has said, but I'll add two last points, which would be, the first is, have you guys heard of the book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? Thinking fast, thinking slow. The guy, who, the author is a Nobel Prize winner, but the thinking fast, we have two ways of thinking. Our instinctive, emotional thinking fast, and then thinking slow, our rational way of, uh, rational, taking it apart. The thinking slow is journalism. But the problem that we're facing is thinking fast, right? Sorry? Forward button, or the send button post button. Yeah. It's so it's, it's anger, which is in many cases the one that spreads like wildfire, is, is visceral. And your rational mind has, a, has no chance to catch up. So what do we need as journalists? Um, thinking fast, thinking slow. We have a thinking fast problem because of the glut of information that is coming at you that you are also consuming. Um, your, your body, we haven't talked about the physiological effects on your body. When you're on social media, you have increased levels of dopamine. It's like dopamine is the hormone that make, that that are in gamblers, they can't stop gambling, right? Um, so it's it's like uh, it's like adrenaline, but uh, on a more so anyway. Physiologically, you're being changed. So as a journalist now, if you ask me, one of the things we're doing at Rappler that allows us to keep track of what is happening in this new virtual world is looking at tech and data, because. By looking at tech and data, we're able to then deconstruct how we are being impacted, tell you about it as journalists, and then educate our society so that we can then 
react in a more thinking slow way, we can then, that self-awareness, and that's the last part I think for me, is that in the end, the thinking fast, thinking slow, um, when you stop yourself from thinking fast, that's self-awareness, and that's when the rational mind kicks in. That's our world today, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, on that note, I would like to very much thank all the three speakers, Maria Ressa from Rappler, Sitad Varadarajan from The Wire, and Matt Davidson from Foreign Correspondent for sharing with us their perspectives of how digital media both provide opportunities and challenges in the world today. So thank you again for Storology 2017 and Sydney Ideas for organizing this event. Have a good evening. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.